Thank you for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. And we're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. Just wanna make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you can find out more information about who we are and where we're headed as a church. Once again, thanks for checking out our sermon here at Hope Church. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. In 2004, I had the incredible privilege of making my first of several trips to one of the oldest civilizations in the world that is still existing today. Had the privilege in 2004 of making my first trip to the nation of Egypt. Egypt and China kind of argue back and forth over which is the oldest existing civilization. But the the people of Egypt go back over 6,000 years in that nation alone. Long history. And when you think about Egypt, obviously there are a few things that come to mind. What's the first thing you think of when you think about Egypt? What do you think about? Pyramids, right? Somebody said desert. Somebody said uh, pharaohs, right? Those are the kinds of things you think about. Another thing that is very common in Egypt when you go there, you get to see it's, it's a souvenir that almost everybody brings home, is something to do with the hieroglyphics from the people of Egypt. It was a method of communication that they created that is used to, to, to pass down information from one generation to the next. And one of the most famous hieroglyphic pieces was one that was found in what they call the book of the dead. And it's entitled the last judgment. And I want to put a picture of it up on the screen. In my office, I have a framed uh, copy of this. It's a handmade painting on a piece of papyrus where somebody's copied this. This is the last judgment. It's papyrus from the nation of Egypt. Now, this piece is interesting because it teaches us something about what the people of Egypt throughout history have believed. The Egyptian people, if you can see here what this is, up in the top right-hand corner, there is a man who has died, and he is facing the afterlife. And what happens is he kind of appears before a set of judges or justices to begin to examine him about his life on this earth. And then as you move down to the bottom left-hand corner of that drawing, that painting there, you see him now standing with someone that's escorting him to a set of scales. And on those set of scales, on one side, if you can see it very closely on one side, is what's called the feather of justice or the feather of righteousness. On the other side is uh, what they believed to be was the person's heart who had passed. And that heart was on the other side and they would stand there. They believed that those scales would weigh that person's heart, basically their life and their character in weight of balanced against the feather of justice and righteousness. And as long as your heart did not weigh more than the feather of righteousness and justice, then you were escorted into this final scene where you are introduced to what they believe to be eternal life. That's thousands of years old from the book of the dead among the people of Egypt. And here's what it tells us. It tells us that the oldest civilization on earth has always believed that my life on this earth 
Ultimately, I am accountable to God after this life for the way that I live here. This oldest civilization has always believed that life on this earth was in some way preparation for the life that is yet to come. And this oldest civilization has always historically believed that that my eternity is somehow based upon the acceptance of God of my life on this earth. Now, this belief in the afterlife, life after death, is not unique to the nation of Egypt or the civilization known as the people of Egypt. As a matter of fact, there's a man named Randy Alcorn. Randy Alcorn has written a book on heaven. It's probably the most exhaustive work on heaven that has ever been written. It's a book that is about the size of a cinder block. It is a serious book on heaven. Now, we have some of these available at the Resource Center. If you want to dig into one, I've I've spent the last couple of months reading through it, just spent a lot of time in it in preparation for this series we're kicking off today. I'm telling you, I don't know of a question you could ask about heaven that Randy Alcorn doesn't in some way address in that book. But if you get that book, pull up a chair. You're going to be there for a minute, all right? That's not a quick read. You don't do that in an afternoon. You're going to read. It's a great resource on heaven. Listen to what Randy Alcorn said. He said, the unifying testimony of the human heart throughout history is the belief in life after death. Anthropological evidence suggests that every culture has a God-given innate sense of the eternal, that this world is not all there is. Here's what Alcorn is saying. Throughout the history of human beings, you go back as far in time as you want to go back. You drop down in any civilization that has ever existed and there is an innate belief inside of every human being that there is something more to this life. You find it in every culture an expression of this view and this belief. Now, it makes me ask the question, where does that come from? Where does it come from that as we live on this earth, we have this this question, this thought, this desire for a life beyond this life? Well, I think we find the answer in the Bible. The Bible says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11. Look at it on the screen. It said, he, that's God, has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set, what's this word? Say it out loud. Eternity in their heart. Here's what that means. As a part of humanity, God wove into the fabric of who we are an understanding that there is more to this life than just our limited existence on this earth planet. I love the way William McDonald writes about this verse of scripture. Listen to what he said. God has put eternity in man's mind. Though living in a world of time, man has intimations of eternity. Instinctively, he thinks of forever. And though he cannot understand the concept, he realizes that beyond this life, There is the possibility of a shoreless ocean 
of time. Woven into the human existence is this idea that there is an eternity out there beyond my life on earth. So the question that we want to unpack then is this. What is that life going to be like? Anybody like to have that question answered today? Well, what's it going to be like after this life? Well, as Jesus' followers, we understand and have had revealed for us in God's word the truth about life after death, what God has given us in his word. We have something in God's word that is so much more, uh, so much more informative, so much more reliable than just some hieroglyphic. We have uh, something much more informative than, than, than research. For example, the, the Pew Research Forum has done a study and determined that this, this thing of eternal life is not just true about civilizations in the past. 72% of Americans believe in heaven. They not just life after death. They believe in a place called heaven. But we have been given the word of God and God's word gives us some clarity about what life in heaven is going to be like. Now, let me give you a disclaimer right up front. All right. We will not answer every question in this series. All right. There's just no way in five weekends we can possibly answer every question because we don't even have time to examine every section of scripture. But I also want you to understand this. God hadn't given us all the information. Listen to another statement by Randy Alcorn. I love this. We should accept that many things about heaven are secret and that God has countless surprises in store for us. That ought to make somebody excited. (laughs) We just learned that God's got some surprises just stored up. He's got some stuff that he just can't wait to reveal, but he just hadn't showed us yet. He's going to show us that some point in the future. But look what he goes on to say. But as for the things God has revealed to us about heaven, these things belong to us. And we find them contained in the word of God. Now, I understand this morning, as we begin this five-week series unpacking this principle of this, this truth about heaven... I understand that today some of you are here and you're regular tenders at our church. You love Jesus. You love the word of God and you expect us to jump right into God's word and unpack from scripture what the Bible has to say. There are others of you who are here. Maybe you've been invited by somebody. Maybe you got an invitation in the mail to come to one of these services and you're skeptical. Why would you just focus on what the Bible has to say? Because there are a lot of books out there that claim to be from God. Well, I want to do two things this morning as we begin. Number one, I want to tell you about a resource. On the front page of our website today, there'll be a link to a sermon that says, it's entitled, Can I Really Trust the Bible? It's a sermon that I preached here about three or four years ago, and it really unpacks this principle of why you can trust and believe in the Bible. And hopefully, if you're one of those that's maybe skeptical about that, it'll give you some information that at least... If you're going to take an honest intellectual approach to scripture, you have to wrestle with some of the archaeological evidence, some of the historical evidence that that has been revealed about scripture. So I want to make that resource available. And just to kind of give you a taste, I want to give you one example of why I believe we can trust the Bible as a book from God. Now, there are a lot of books that claim to be books from God. If you agree with that, say amen. 
There are a lot of books out there. People write and they say, this is a book from God. What distinguishes the Bible from all these other books? Well, one of the things that distinguishes it is the way it was written. For example, all the other books that claim to be books from God were written by either one author or at one period of time. For example, the, the, the religion of Islam, one of the largest religions in the world, has a book that they claim to be a book from God. It was written by a man, a prophet they call Muhammad. Muhammad supposedly received a word from God through a uh, angel Gabriel and Gabriel gave this message to Muhammad and in one setting, in one time period, Muhammad sat down and wrote everything that he was told. One author, one time period. So you would assume that a book written in one, by one author at one time period would pass all the tests of historical criticism and have complete consistency from beginning to end and yet... The Quran fails the test of historical criticism and does not speak with consistency from beginning to end. Another book, the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon is from the religion of Mormonism that professes to be a book from God, written by one man, Joseph Smith, in one time period. He is supposedly to have received a message through an angel, Moroni. And in receiving that message through this angel, he wrote it down and it became the book that the Church of Latter-day Saints follows to this day called the Book of Mormon. One author, one time period. So you would assume one author, one time period would be consistent and it would pass the test of historical criticism. Again, Book of Mormon fails those tests. The Bible. Did you know that the Bible was written in 66 different books? That the Bible was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. That the Bible was written on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. That the Bible was written by 40 different authors, most of whom never even met because the Bible was written over a span of 50. 1,500 years, which means some of the authors of what we contain, what we call the Bible didn't even live in the same millennium with one another, and yet the Bible passes every test of historical criticism. The Bible speaks from consistency, from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. One message that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. As a matter of fact, the evidence for the authority of Scripture is so overwhelming that was a young college student by the name of Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell was a devout atheist and someone who had set out to disprove Christianity. While on a college campus as a student, he was confronted by a small group of college students who challenged him about the truths and claims of the gospel. It angered Josh McDowell. So he dedicated 1,000 hours, five months of his life, to going off in the woods into a cabin, taking the Bible and a bunch of other books, and for 1,000 hours doing nothing but studying to disprove and debunk what he believed to be the myth of Christianity and come back to those students and renounce their Christianity and convince them that they believed a lie. At the end of his thousand hours of study, I want you to listen to what Josh McDowell wrote. Look at it on the screen. The Bible was written over a period of about 1,500 years in various places stretching all the way from Babylon to Rome. 
The human authors included over 40 persons from various stations of life. Kings, peasants, poets, herdsmen, fishermen, scientists, farmers, priests, pastors, tent makers, and governors. It was written in a wilderness, a dungeon, inside palaces and prisons, on lonely islands, and in military battles. Yet it speaks with agreement and reliability on hundreds of controversial subjects. Yet it tells one story from beginning to end. God's salvation of man through Jesus Christ. No person could have possibly conceived of or written such a work. When Josh McDowell finished his study... He was so convinced of the truths of the Bible, he surrendered the control of his life to Jesus Christ, became a born-again follower of Jesus, and has spent the last 45 years traveling to college campuses all over the world, defending the historical truths of Christianity that God loves the world. He gave his son Jesus to save the world. And so for the context of our series, we're going to use this book. We're going to limit and contain what we have to say because the bottom line is my opinion, my idea, my philosophy is no more valid or relevant than yours. But when we can understand God's told us some stuff, we need to listen to what God has to say. So over the next five weekends, we're going to begin to unpack and answer some questions. For example, we're going to answer the question, what is heaven and who's going to be there? We're going to answer the question. What's heaven going to be like? We're going to take two weekends to do this. We're going to talk one weekend about things that won't be in heaven. It's a lot the Bible has to say about some stuff that we're around now that won't be there. We're going to take another whole week and we're going to talk about what the Bible says, some things that are going to be in heaven. We're going to take another week and answer this question. When will I go to heaven and what am I going to do when I get there? A lot of misunderstandings surrounding that question. We're going to take another week and answer the question, how does what I know about heaven impact my life today? So if you're excited about us unpacking all those questions, say amen. Amen. Let's get started. Open your Bible. We're going to start in John chapter 14. Let me tell you why I'm going to start here. Most people who would discount the teachings of the Bible, most people, not all, But many of the people who would say, yeah, I don't know about the Bible being God, would at least say the teachings of Jesus, I like those. Jesus says some good stuff. Most people would say, you know, if you follow most of what Jesus said, society would be a better place. So so we're going to jump in today at a place that hopefully we can all come together, and that is literally the words of Jesus himself. Here's what he said. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. 
You know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let me ask a couple of questions we'll answer them this morning. Number one, what is heaven? What is it? Some people think it's a fairy tale. Some people think that it is a figment of our imagination that we have created to help us cope with death in our human existence. Some people think that it is a state of being that we get to someplace that really is nothing like anything we've ever known. It's such a different form of existence. It's just a, a state of consciousness. But here's the first thing I want you to hear me say about heaven. Heaven is a real place. I want you to read this out loud with me because I want you to hear yourself say it. Heaven is a real place. It's as real as Las Vegas. It's as real as Miami. It's as real as Tokyo. It's as real as London. It's as real as New York City. Heaven is a real, literal place. You say, how can we be sure that heaven is a real place? Well, let me tell you how. Because of what Jesus said. Jesus did a couple of things here. First of all, look at the words that he used. Jesus uses three different words in these verses to talk about heaven. First of all, he used the word place. The word place is the Greek word topos. We get an English word topography from it. It's the study of particular places, the nuances of a particular area of land, the hills, the valleys, the crests, the, the rivers, the lakes. It's topography. It, it refers to a place. In the New Testament, this word refers to a definite spot in a city or a definite spot in a house. It's a literal, physical place. This word is used throughout the New Testament. But get this. Every time this word is used in the New Testament, it always refers to a real, literal place. It's never used one time to refer to a place that's a fairy tale or symbolic or something that's just we've, we've created. It always refers to a specific, literal place. Second word he uses is the word house. He says, in my father's house. The word house is used 73 times in the New Testament. 70 of the 73 times it's used in the New Testament, you know what it refers to? A real, literal house. Three times it doesn't refer to that, but when it's used in those three times, you know what it refers to? Real people who live together in a real, literal house. It's the word household or real people. So every time this word is used in Scripture, it's used exclusively to refer to a real place or real people living together in a real place. Third word is dwelling place. He said, in my father's house are many dwelling places. It's a different word than topos. It's a word that means to remain, to dwell. It refers to a literal place. Now, here's what we believe as Christians. We believe that every word of Scripture is inspired by God. 
That means that what we have in our Bible is not a book that contains the word of God. What we have in our Bible is the word of God. It's God's word. Every word of it is God breathed. So these words that Jesus chose to use are very important. And every one of them refer to a real, literal, physical place. So heaven is a, say it out loud. We know it because of the words Jesus used. But secondly, we know it because of the way Jesus used these words. How many of you have ever heard John 14 read before? Hold up your hand. That's what I thought most of you. You know where most of us have heard John 14 before? If you've heard it before, you've probably heard it at a funeral. Because a funeral is where a lot of times we turn to John 14 to bring encouragement to people. And so when you hear John 14 at a funeral, here's the way you hear it. Do not let your heart be troubled. (laughs) Believe in God. Believe also in me. Trying to be so tender and sensitive. Did you know... That's not how Jesus said it at all. As a matter of fact, if you understand the context of this verse, chapter 13, Jesus in John 13 had just laid the hammer down on his disciples. He'd been giving them glimpses about what was coming, but in John 13, it got real. He got them in an upper room. He brought out some bread. He brought out some wine, and he said, guys, let me tell you something. I'm about to die. This bread, it represents my body. It's about to be broken. This this cup, it represents my blood. It's about to be shed. I'm about to die. I'm about to be crucified. My life is coming to an end. And then at the end of chapter 13, he looks at them, and he says, hey, I'm going to leave when I'm dead. I'm going to be gone. when I'm gone, I'm going somewhere. And right now you cannot come where I am going. These men for three and a half years had followed Jesus. Most of them had left their job, their home, their family, their friends, their community. They'd walked away from everything, believing that Jesus was going to usher in a literal, physical kingdom on earth. And now they get up to what they believe is about to be the grand climax, the great crescendo, when Jesus ushers in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, hey, here's the way it's going down. I'm about to die. And when I die, I'm going to leave. And you cannot come where I'm going. And the look of fear in their eyes. It's like that look when the football coach in the first game, you've been training all summer. First game, you put them on the field. First series of offense. And nothing goes the way you thought it was going to go. The defense doesn't do what you'd prepared for them to do. The offense doesn't work the way you want it to work. And they're huddled up about to run out on the, 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 the second series of the game. And they're all looking at the coach with fear and trembling in their eyes. And the coach says... Do not let your heart be troubled. (laughs) Believe in the playbook. (laughs) Believe also in me. No, what is the coach going to do? He's going to get in their face. He's going to look at them and say, hey, listen, just trust me. We got a plan. It's going to work. The disciples looked at Jesus with that fear, and Jesus got in their face, and here's what he said. Don't worry. Don't you worry. Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Just trust me. I have a plan. And if I go, I will come again so that you can be 
where I am. Heaven is a, say it out loud, real place. place. Tell you the second thing. Heaven is a real place prepared by God. Read it out loud. Heaven is a real place prepared by God. One of the most misinterpreted verses of Scripture in all the Bible is right here in John 14. Look at it. Jesus says, For I go to prepare a place for you. Now that phrase is so misinterpreted and mispreached. And I'm going to show you the way most preachers preach it, but I'm going to tell you up front so you don't say amen, it's wrong. (laughs) I don't want to embarrass you and you get all excited because it sounds exciting. But here's what they say. Did you hear what Jesus said? He's going to prepare a place for you. Now for two thousand years. Jesus has been up there in heaven, just getting heaven ready for you. Oh, can you imagine what it's going to be like? I mean, look at the earth and all the galaxies and God spoke all of that into existence in six days. And now for 2000 years, they make it sound like Jesus is Bob the builder or the rehab addict up there in heaven. Getting things ready. He's got his tool belt on. He's running around with his saw and his his measuring tape. And he's just working himself to death. Getting heaven ready. Let me me say something. That's not at all what Jesus meant when he said, I'm going to prepare a place. First of all, it's wrong grammatically. In the Greek language, the verb tense is very important. If that is the right interpretation, the verb tense would have been present active. Meaning ongoing, continuous. Jesus could have said, I'm going to prepare and keep on preparing a place for you. But that's not what he said. The tense of this verb is aorist. The aorist tense describes specific, completed action that happens in time. Jesus didn't say, hey, for 2,000 years, I'm going to prepare and keep preparing. Here's what he said. I'm about to do something one time. And when I finish it, everything that's needed to be done to prepare a place for you in heaven, it's going to be done. Now, again, it's not just wrong grammatically. It's also wrong contextually. Remember what happened right after he said that? They walked out of that upper room. They went out into a garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. He got his disciples together. They began to pray. While they were praying, the disciples fell asleep. He woke the disciples up. Here come some guards led by Judas into the garden. They arrest Jesus. They run him through a series of mock trials. They beat him. They abuse him. They persecute him. They ridicule him. And ultimately, they nail him to a cross for your sin and my sin. He took all the sin of the world on himself on that cross. And on the cross, Jesus died. But just before he died, He said three little words. You know what he said? It is what? 
finished. What was finished? Everything that needed to be done to prepare a place in eternity for you and me. When Jesus died on the cross for our sins and he came bouncing out of that grave, having defeated death, hell, and the grave, heaven had been prepared for you and for me. It's prepared by God. Third thing about heaven. Heaven is a real place prepared by God to be with his people forever. Did you hear what he said? That where I am. <laughs> now he's in the present tense. This isn't aorist. This is present. Meaning it's describing ongoing, continuous. Here's, what you could, here's the way you could translate that. He's saying where I am and will continue to be forever. He said, therefore, where I am, you may be. Guess what that is? That's present tense. Ongoing, continuous. Many of you can translate it like this. That where he is and continues to be forever, there you will be and continue to be forever. Now, over the next four weekends, we're going to unpack more of what that's going to look like. But I want to just whet your appetite with another quote out of a book by a man named Chip Ingram, pastor in California. Now, this book's about a third of the size of Randy Alcorn's book. And we have this one available at our resource center as well. So you can pick up either one of these if you want to dig deeper. But listen to what, Randy, what Chip Ingram said. Contrary to popular culture and the last five movies about heaven... Because we just don't understand, right? I mean, we, we think we're going to be up there playing harps and have wings and nobody's got feet, right? Because it's always cloudy and you can't ever tell people got feet or not. <laughs> Contrary to popular culture and the last five movies about heaven, we're not going to be floating in clouds, wearing white robes and playing harps. Heaven is very tangible and real. The world we now live in is an old earth that has fallen, but there is coming a new heaven and a new earth that is as real, physical, and tangible as this earth. There will be activity and work to be done. We will be productive and there will be adventure and new experiences. We will learn, work, and create. Songs will be written. Art, music, and culture will be created as we continue to learn of the infinite wisdom and glory of God. Think of the most spectacular sunset you've ever witnessed. Think about your favorite place to vacation. Think about the greatest adventure you've ever been on. Think about your favorite memory with your kids. The new heaven and the new earth will be all of that and so much more. That ought to excite our soul. And listen, he's just writing about the stuff God's already told us. That don't even include the surprises. <laughs> Last question, I'm done this morning. Who will be in heaven? Who'll be in heaven? Well, for starters, we know that angels will be in heaven. In Revelation chapter 5, the Bible says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the number of them was myriads of myriads. You say, what is a myriad? Well, in the New Testament, it's used two ways. Sometimes it refers to a countless number, an infinite number. Other times it refers to the specific number, 10,000. 
So let's just err on the cautious side and say it's the smaller of the two. It's not the infinite countless number. It's the 10,000. He said, John said, when I looked into heaven, God let me see it. I saw myriads of myriads, 10,000 times 10,000 or 100 million angels. There are going to be a whole lot of angels in heaven. But there's a second group that we know will be in heaven. People will be in heaven. And no, we don't become angels. And no, we don't get wings every time a bell dings. Regardless of what Clarence and It's a Wonderful Life have taught you. That's not in Scripture. As a matter of fact, the angels long to see what's happening with us. The Bible says in another place in Scripture that right now as we're gathered in this place, there are angels in heaven that are huddled up, leaning in, watching because they just can't wait to see what God's going to do next with his people. There'll be people in heaven, but, but which people are going to be in heaven? Well, according to an ABC News poll, <laughs> hey, I'm just stating it. I didn't write it. 75% of all Americans believe they're going to heaven. Now, what's interesting about that is that's the opposite of what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the path that leads to destruction. And get this, many are those who enter by it. But narrow is the gate. And small is the path that lead to life. And there are few of those who find it. The Bible doesn't say the majority are going to heaven. The Bible says the few, the minority, are going to heaven. Well, pastor, if that's true, how can I be sure that I'm going to heaven? Well, what did Jesus say? He said, I am the way. The truth and the life. Now, a lot of people, matter of fact, almost 50% of Americans believe that there are many ways leading to heaven. That there's this one heaven, but there's a whole lot of good ways to get there. And it doesn't matter which path you get on, as long as you get on a path. Now, that would be acceptable if Jesus had said, I am a way. But Jesus didn't say, I'm a way. He said, I am the way. Now, here's what that means. Either Jesus lied, either Jesus is crazy, because let's just be honest. Somebody stands up in here this morning and shouts, I am the way to heaven. First thing we're going to do is call police, right? Second thing we're going to do is try to get them escorted to a clinic, right? Because if somebody stood up in here and said that this morning, what would we say about them? Crazy. Something, you know, a few french fries short of a Happy Meal here. Something's not, something's not right. And yet Jesus said that. 
So you can't just put him in a category and say, well, he's a decent teacher, has moral instruction. If you just follow some of his teachings, then you'll be better. Listen, you would never say that about somebody who stood up in here and said, hey, I'm the only way to God. By the way, if you follow what he says, most of his stuff's pretty good. No, you wouldn't do that. You'd write that person off as having lost their mind. He's either a liar, he's lost his mind, or he is the way. The truth, the life. What's the difference between the way and a way? Well, for example, I live in, I was born and raised, grew up in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. I now live in Las Vegas, Nevada. If you wanted to get to Muscle Shoals, Alabama this morning with me, we could walk out of here, get in our car in a parking lot. We could drive the 215 over to the 95, heck, take that all the way down to Kingman, jump on I-40 in Kingman, Arizona, stay on it all the way to Memphis, Tennessee. Get off in Memphis, Tennessee on Highway 72 heading east. And you'd drive Highway 72 heading east for about two and a half hours and you'd roll right into the glorious grand town of Muscle Shoals, Alabama. That's a way to get there. Or we could get in our car in the parking lot. We could drive to the 215. We could get off at the McCarran International Airport exit. We could park our car there at McCarran International. We could, rent a, we, could, we could buy a ticket on an airplane, Delta Airlines, and we'd fly first to Atlanta, Georgia, because you can't go anywhere this side of heaven without going through Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> so we'd go to Atlanta, Georgia, and then we'd jump on a little puddle jumper and take that over to Huntsville, Alabama. We'd get out of the plane there. We'd rent a car. We'd go 72 west. We'd drive about an hour. We'd roll right into Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Or... We can get in our car in a parking lot. We can drive down to Long Beach, California. We can rent a boat. <laughs> we can take that boat around the southern tip of California and Mexico. We can, watch, we, we can go right through the Panama Canal into the Gulf of Mexico. We can come north up in the Gulf of Mexico to the wonderful port of Mobile, Alabama. We can rent us a car. We can drive high, inter, Interstate 65 north all the way to you get to Highway 72. You get off Highway 72. You go west. About an hour, you'll be in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Any one of those ways is legitimate. If Jesus had said there is a way to heaven, just pick your path and go after it. But Jesus didn't say, I'm a way to heaven. Jesus said, I'm the way to heaven. I am the truth about God. I am the very life of God. And so here's the bottom line. Only those who trust in Jesus Christ in this life will go to heaven. That's what this book says. It's the only authority we have to speak. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. But there's one more person who'll be in heaven. Angels going to be there. People who know Jesus going to be there. Hope this is the best part. Jesus is going to be there. Did you hear what he said? That where I am. Oh, I hear that. Everything we know right now about him. We know by faith. I sense his presence by faith. 
I sense the, the warmth of his embrace by faith. I hear him speak by faith. But one day, I will no longer need faith because I will see him with my eye. I will touch him with my hand. I will listen to him with the ears that are on the side of my head as he speaks the word of God into my soul. We will see him just as he is. Let's pray together this morning. Father, as we begin to understand some of what you've revealed to us about heaven, I pray that today we would be encouraged that heaven's a real place. It's a real place that you prepared and made possible for us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a real place where we get to spend eternity with you. But God, it's a place that's only for those who know you as Lord and Savior, who have an intimate love relationship with Jesus, who've been born again. And God, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction to those who do not know you and that they would see the reality of Jesus and be drawn to you. As you sit here this morning in the stillness of this moment with nobody looking around right now but me, if you don't know Jesus, but you want to come to know him so that you can enjoy his presence in this life and then you can enjoy his presence for all eternity in the life to come called heaven. If you don't know Jesus, we're going to stand in just a moment and sing a song of worship about heaven. When we sing this song, if you don't know Jesus, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. It's very simple. You just slip out of your seat, come to one of these pastors that's going to be here at the front. And while we're singing, you just say to one of those pastors, I need Jesus. And we'll have somebody sit down with you and open a Bible and in just a couple of minutes show you how you can begin a relationship with God, how you can be forgiven of your sin and come to know God personally. All you have to do is come. Just come. Just come. That's it. Just come. We'll show you from there. Maybe you're here and you're already a Christian and God stirred in your heart today. In response to this, a desire to just pray and talk with God. These altars are going to be open up here. You can come and pray and be alone with God. Maybe you need to pray with one of our pastors about something in your job, your health, your family, your relationship. We'd be honored to pray for you and with you. You just come while we're singing. You come. The rest of us, this is the time to reflect on what we've heard, set our minds on things above, and worship the God of heaven and earth. Father, in this moment, may we be caught up in worship. Lord, would you give boldness to those that need to be saved today? Those that want to know for sure when this life is over that they are ushered into the presence of God in eternity forever and forever. A new heaven and a new earth. God, would you give them the boldness to come? We entrust this to you in Jesus' name.